Well, good morning, church. How y'all doing today? Good. Hey, I just want to say again how glad I am to have Anthony Dunning on our staff. Man, he is a great dude. Give it up for him again. It's been a long time coming to get that guy here. And we're just adding another stellar player to an already stellar team. We got some other people join us soon. I mean, it is it, it, one of the great honors of my life is that I get to be the lead minister at this church and serve alongside such fantastic servants. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, just fantastic servants from our elders to our staff, to our key volunteers, so many of all y'all. Uh, it's just a great church, man. And we are on the brink of seeing God continue to do some awesome things here. So hold tight and join in because it is going to be a good ride. Well, let's get right to it, man. It was about 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus when Jews from several different nations and many different areas all over the place, they just converged on Jerusalem for a religious festival and a feast and this big gathering. And as all these Jewish people came into this gathering, this big festival, it was then that the first followers of Jesus went boldly public for the first time. And they began preaching the message of hope that we have in Jesus, the hope that we have, the joy that we have, the peace that we get, the mercy, the love, the grace from Jesus. They began preaching the message of Jesus, and they saw thousands, literally thousands of people go all in with them. These Jews were like, oh, that's the Messiah. We're in. And so from that moment on, they had this beautiful birth of the church. But then the church starts growing and spreading and moving up. But so did persecution. And it was in that zone about a decade later that the church was highly persecuted. They were socially ostracized. They were economically persecuted, held at bay for things. It was there that they were oppressed financially, harassed physically. They were just turned away by friends and family. It was this tough time because as the church grew... You had these people, not all who believed, followed, not, not all believed when they heard the message, but even in this part of the church, even some who believed still chose not to follow. Like, oh yeah, he's the Messiah, but if I follow him, that, that means that I got to give up some of my power. So you had these, these religious and political and economic and social power brokers at that time who said, I'm going to have to give something up. I'm going to lose my influence. I'm going to lose my position in society based on the message of the cross. Well, I don't want anything to do with that. They would rather choose the power in this world instead of link in with the eternal power of Jesus. And so they were pushing against the church. And those earliest Christians, they felt that they were ostracized. They were facing all kinds of trials and troubles. Some were on trial to face potential prison sentences for their faith. Some had lost homes, many had lost families, some had lost jobs, some were on the brink of losing their life for the faith. And it's against this backdrop that James, the half-brother of Jesus, begins this story. He writes a letter to the church, and it's in this zone that he writes. Now, James, the half-brother of Jesus, that they shared the same mom, Mary, But while Joseph was James' biological daddy, he was Jesus' adoptive daddy, if that makes sense to you. So it's there that James writes this. The church is in this difficult zone. They are hated by the oppressive Roman culture. They are hated by their own ethnic Jewish culture. They're kind of in this no-man land in between. And it wasn't like today when you might expect to get an email or, you know, the preacher 
throws a tweet out on Twitter or a post on social media, maybe an Instapic or a TikTok vid. I don't do many of those, but you know, it wasn't anything like that. He pens this letter to send to the church and take it out. And this is what he says. It says, this letter is from James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, to all my brothers and sisters of faith scattered throughout the world. Greetings to you. And I love how James begins so humbly, a servant of God. Now, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is James, who could have done the little name drop and like, yeah, you know what family I'm from. You know who my brother is. This is, you know, there's no chest thump and name dropping, just the opposite. He begins, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. Now, how many of y'all have siblings in here? I know some of you do because my wife's got a couple of her sisters with her today. How many of y'all got siblings, right? Yeah, I'm the youngest of four, two older brothers and older sister. How many of you with siblings, those of you online, say to you, yeah, I got siblings, just type it in the chat. How many of you with siblings introduce yourself as a servant to your sibling? Anybody? No? No? What? I mean, how many of you, when you're hanging out with your brother or sister, you're like, oh, that's my master over there? Yeah, me neither, right? That's not what a, a half-brother does with a brother, right? Now, to be fair, my brother Mike seven years older than me, and he has softened a little bit over the years. But when we were little, there may have been a time or two that I was forced to refer to him as master. But now we're adults, and I'm bigger than he is. That ain't happening now, man. Like... Come up and brother. So it just doesn't happen. Brother doesn't refer to brother as master, as I'm his servant. It just and, and to be fair, James didn't begin that way. James was not only with Jesus first. In fact, you just know there was some childhood rivalry there. Like the sibling rivalry. Growing up with big brother Jesus. If you're the younger sibling, have you ever tried to step into the big shoes of your older siblings? At least your older sibling wasn't God, right? <laughs> it's just, what? But you know there were moments. There were moments where James was like, Jesus, what's up with you, man? You're always acting like you're God's gift to the world or something. What's with that? You know, Jesus just standing there like, well, <laughs> there is that, you know? And, and so when Jesus begins preaching and he begins his ministry, James is not in. James, in fact, is pushing against him. He's like, bro, he's off his rocker, like, you know, he shows up at one point, Jesus is teaching. James shows up, he's like, brother, like you're embarrassing the family. Stop, quiet, mom, we gotta institutionalize this guy. He thinks he's the Messiah. People follow him like, this is embarrassing. Come on, like, Ugh. you know, so he is not in with the ministry of Jesus. But then, not long after Jesus' death, James changed the story, he goes in with him. So what was the card Jesus played that convinced James to go in? The resurrection. Right? If you want your sibling to believe that you're God, here's the formula. You die, and I don't mean like you're out for like 20 minutes or so. They do some chest compressions, bring you back. Oh, no, I mean like you're dead. And there's a funeral. They bury you. They put you in the ground. Right? There's a casket. It closes. It's in the ground. Throw the dirt in. Three days later, you come out of the ground, and then you go eat some fish with your brother. That's a good way to prove you're God, right? Like that's how you get your sibling to be like, oh, Right, so you just know in that moment, Jesus has this special resurrection appearance to his brother James. And at that point, James is like, oh, so you weren't crazy. I was wrong. Like, can you know how siblings love to admit they're wrong to one another? Like, you just know there's this great moment. But Jesus is God, and he's like humble, and he's beautiful, and he's just like, oh, I get it, man. Like, 
gets in. So James from that point on goes full in with his brother and with this ministry and begins following him. In fact, he goes so far in that it's not long after he writes this letter that he is persecuted for his faith to the point of being martyred. And church tradition tells us that while a man was beating his head in with a stick, sorry for the graphic nature, but that's what happened. While a man was beating his head in, James is praying, Father, forgive them, have mercy on my oppressors. Like, that's the radical change we see in James. Now, I'm going to point out, too, that James doesn't make any claim of, like, salvation by association. He doesn't make the claim because he knows there's no claim to make. He doesn't say, well, my brother's the Messiah, so I'm good. No, no, what James shows us is just the opposite. He says all of us have to take responsibility for our faith. We all have to own our faith. We all have to declare that it's personal, that it's our relationship with God. In fact, James says, my relationship with God is my responsibility. And we are wise if we own that as well. Your responsibility with God is your responsibility. And that's always wrapped up in the context of community of believers. But you have to own your faith. There is no pass, Right? And this is what it means. Like None of us gets a free pass because of a family member. It doesn't matter how devout mommy and daddy are, how much they attend a church, what the roles were. It doesn't matter if grandpa was like the great preacher or something. It doesn't matter how much grandma prayed for you. Like it matters. It just doesn't matter. Like your salvation doesn't hinge on that. It doesn't matter what role brother or sister has. Like my kids don't get a pass because dad's preacher. James, of all people, doesn't get a pass because brother is God. No, he's got to surrender to him and follow him as God. But here's what James knows. Here's what allows him to go all in and put his faith in Jesus. He knows that the one who raises from the dead is worth following. I love the way James describes his relationship with God with this one little word. Servant. Servant. I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We got a lot to learn from just that word. Do we believe, do we act, do we live like God is here to serve us or are we here to serve him? See, James knows that the one who came back from the grave deserves, is worthy of his allegiance. That the one who raises from the grave has holy power in him, is worthy of being worshipped. But he also knows that the one who willingly chose a cross and the brutal death that was intended for him, the one who goes to the cross in his place, is for him. So the one who came from the grave and is worthy of allegiance is also a God he can trust to be for him because that's what he's demonstrated. So we go all in with Jesus and we follow him because he is good and he's powerful. He deserves it. He's worth it. But he's also for us. He's a good God. What a beautiful thing. And so this is James, right? This is the background to this author for us, right? And, and he begins writing this message to the church. And he, he, he addresses some things that he's seeing in the church. Because what he sees in the church is some things that are just not quite right. He sees people abandoning their faith because they're pursuing the supposed comforts of this world. He sees people acting with cruelty and partiality to one another inside the church. He sees people doing things in the church that just aren't right. He sees people acting with arrogance and espousing false wisdom. And he says, no, 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 no. He says, man, that's 
what happens to us from all those godless people in that hostile world to us. That's the stuff that they're doing to us as followers of God that we don't like. Why in God's name literally are we doing that to one another in the church? Church, it's not right. So he writes a letter to give guidance, to change them, to offer perspective and steer them away from that. And so he begins his letter with a bit of encouragement. He writes this, dear brothers and sisters, I love that he refers to us as brothers, sisters, and Jesus as master. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, notice he doesn't say if, he says when, troubles will come your way, be prepared, expect it, they're going to happen. When they come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. This dude is nuts. When bad things happen, yippee-yay, woohoo! Have some joy. That's not exactly what he's saying. He says, you don't have to see that as a joyful moment, but know that there's an opportunity for joy in that. Because you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be mature and complete, needing nothing. When trials come our way, let it grow you. Now, now, this is James who's got some street cred for dealing with difficult times, dealing with trials, dealing with temptations. This is James who faced all the persecution of the early church. This is James who was martyred for his faith. He's got some street cred on talking about trials to us. So what do we do when trials come our way? When we face trials, we either grow or we give up. Now, there's two options. We either grow or we give up. Grow or give up. See, we will all face trials that tempt us to back away from our faith. We'll all face trials that test our faith in God. And what is faith but believing in advance will only make sense in reverse. See, we believe in a future-oriented God. Our trust is in a future-oriented God. So faith is this kind of challenging thing because it believes in advance what I'm only going to get to see in the rearview mirror. You're driving down the road, but you don't get to see what's happening until you look back and say, oh, look at the beautiful scenery behind me. That's what God was up to. Faith is saying, I trust that what God is working out in this moment for the future glory will be better than what's behind me. What's coming ahead is better than what's behind, and it's better than even what's now. And he's up to something in the midst of the now to produce a better next. That's faith. And he says, your faith is going to be tested. It's going to be tried. So lean into God when it happens. Friend, I don't know what trials you might be facing, but I want you to know this, that we have faith in a God who is very much in tune with the here and the now. The Bible speaks to the reality of the world we live in, in the here and now, in a place where we have faith, but we also are faced with death and sickness and friends who betray us and bad things of all sorts happening to us. And so if you choose to depend on God in the midst of those trials, Here's what I guarantee you. You will discover the joy of maturity, of faith. It's a beautiful thing that comes from it. Trials are a pathway to maturity, making us aware of our need to depend on God. It draws us closer to God, gives us more confidence in who God is, what he's done, what he's up to still. Back in 1871, Chicago was ravaged by fire, the great Chicago fire. A guy named Horatio Spangler lost all of his wealth during that great fire to make matters way, 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 way worse. He also lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever at the same time. Has to start rebuilding his wealth, has to start picking up pieces from a very sad family. He's got four daughters, his wife, Anna. Two years later, they decide they're going to take this voyage across the ocean, head across the pond over to... 
Europe. And right as they're about to go, he gets detained by work, puts them on the boat, they sail on ahead of him. But as they're crossing the Atlantic, their ship is struck by another vessel. Their ship sinks, Anna, his wife, the only one who survives, the four daughters drown. She's rescued, she's taken over to England, and, uh, or France rather, she sends a message back to him. He immediately drops everything, books voyage across the sea. He's traveling across the ocean, and at one point, the captain comes up to him and says, sir, we believe that this is the spot where your daughters drown. Now some of you know this story, you know what's next. It wasn't long after that that he wrote the famous hymn, penned the words, to it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, you've taught me to say, God, it's well, it is well with my soul. Now, a lot of people don't know what came next for Horatio and his wife, Anna. After that tragedy, after that song, he, they had three more children. Unfortunately, their second son died of scarlet fever also at just the age of three. And after that, they announced, they renounced their earthly wealth and their fortune. They packed their bags. They moved to Jerusalem as missionaries to serve the poor and created a, uh, a new ministry there to reach people to help them, to love them. Now, this is a dude who knew trials. This is a guy who knew the temptation to blame God and to walk away from God and to be angry with God. And instead, he leaned into God. And he chose to draw near to God and allow God to do something in him through all of that mess and all of that pain. This man faced trials that I know nothing about. And I pray that you never would face either. And then he allowed that to be fertile soil for God to grow him and mature him and draw him near to himself. And so as he went through that, his faith was tested and he came out stronger on the other side. See, for those of us who are Christians, there's never an off button in our maturity process. We are always progressing toward holiness. It's, the Bible calls it sanctification, the process of God making us holy, of God doing a work in us to form us continually into the people he's created us to be, drawing us closer and closer to himself, making us more and more holy bit by bit by bit, day by day by day. And if we allow even the difficult circumstances of life to grow us and draw us near to God to increase our dependency on him, then we get to see something beautiful come from the other side. Now, I love James in part, and y'all are gonna get to see bad side of your pastor. I love James Park because he's sarcastic. And I appreciate a little bit of sarcasm. Because James tells us, he says, because when your faith develops into maturity, right, this is the next passage for us, James 1, 4, 3, when you are mature and complete, you're not going to need anything. And the very next thing he says is, if you need wisdom. Now I love this. He's, he's being sarcastic here. It's like, when you're mature, you won't need anything. By the way, if you need wisdom, if, as if, we know we need wisdom. None of us has it all figured out. None of us is in control. We know we need wisdom. We know we need help. He says, so you, you, ain't, you ain't wise. Oh, let's go back to that passage four. Oh, yeah, here we go. So when you're mature and complete, you need nothing. But if you need wisdom, go ahead and ask our generous God. He's not stingy. He'll give it to you. And he will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Don't waver for a person with a divided loyalty. Now, some of you are familiar with this passage in the NIV. It says a double-minded person. This is what that means, a person with divided loyalty. They are as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Those sea billows crashing into it. And those people, 
They should not expect to receive anything from the Lord because their loyalty is divided between God and the world and they are as unstable in everything they do. I'm gonna make sure we understand the difference between divided loyalty and doubt. Because sometimes this passage gets a little misconstrued. Sometimes we get confused on this. And we think, oh, man, if I pray, I got I to gotta believe wholeheartedly fully, or else it's not going to happen. And, uh, and, and like doubt gets viewed as sin. Church, I want you to hear me on this. Doubt is not sin. I, I want you to hear it again. Doubt is not sin. There's a, a guy whose son was sick and demon-possessed, and he came up to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, if you can heal my son, please do. And Jesus is like, whoa, if, if I can heal your son. You know who you're talking to? With God, all things are possible. If I can heal your son, of course I can heal your son. And the man exclaims to him, and he hears Jesus say, he says, oh, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I believe, but there's still some room for doubt in there. I, I don't want the doubt. Help me overcome that because I believe in you. And Jesus heals his son. Listen, friend, we will all face moments in life, and it's normally at the result of a trial, of a great problem, of those uncertain times where our faith is tested, where we see that there are seeds and saplings of doubt in us. And in that moment, your doubt is not sin. It's an opportunity to lean into God more, to trust him more, to allow him to continue to do that maturing work in you. Now, to look at your doubt and to run away from God, that would be sin. But the doubt alone is not sin. Allow that doubt to draw you near to God, to cause you to explore who he is and what he's up to. To trust him even when you can't see what he's up to. And doubt isn't sin. It can lead to it. Now, divided loyalty is Divided loyalty is when we see things going a different way, right? Now, now here's what I'm going to encourage us to pray about. I'm going to encourage us to pray this prayer every day. God, grant me wisdom. I don't got it all figured out. God, I need you. I need your wisdom, not mine. So God, grant me wisdom. Increase my faith. Kill my doubts. Give me more faith, less doubt. You begin praying that prayer every day. God is not stingy with his answers. You lean into him. You listen to him. He will answer that prayer. God, give me your wisdom. Not the wisdom of this world. That's just going to lead me astray. God, give me your wisdom. Give me more faith and kill my doubt. He'll answer. Now, the person who divided loyalty, they don't pray that prayer. Because the person who divided loyalty has one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Divided loyalty looks like this. The person who goes to church and then they leave church and they don't look like they've been in church. <laughs> It's a person who acts one way around with the church people on Sunday, and there's somebody different Monday morning in the office, Sunday night at home, when they're with their bar buddies, or their baseball buddies, or their whatever buddies, right? You have a totally different kind of personality when you're around church people and when you're not. And Jesus says, man, that's a bad way to live. That, that is serving two different masters. Jesus defines as like the person who tries to serve two different masters, one foot in the world, one foot in God, and that's just going to rip you apart at the seams. That's not a good way to live. A person's unstable, untrustworthy. And one of the primary areas that Jesus defines where our divided loyalty shows up, James also hits here in just a moment, and that's our money. Listen, I know some of you get on edge when the preacher mentions money. But let's all be honest. Let's get real honest. It is way easier to praise Jesus with our mouth than it is with our bank account. It's way easier 
to honor Jesus with an hour on Sunday, or maybe even two, than it is with everything else we got. And so Jesus pushes against this. James pushes against this. James says, believers who are poor have something to boast about. I had never considered the moments when I thought myself as in need of a little bit more as a time to boast. But this is great wisdom from James. says, those who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. So those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. Next slide. The hot sun rises and the grass withers, the little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. This was one of the main trials facing the early church. The Roman culture and the oppressive Jewish culture to them had, didn't want anything to do with them. They wouldn't hire them. They didn't want to do business with the Christians. They, didn't want to, they were just oppressive to those early Christians. So these Christians were financially oppressed and ostracized. And so here they are. Like they understand poverty. Like they are at the mercy of the, the broader culture, the elite aristocracy. And so here they are facing that. And James reminds them, he says, listen, riches fade. Don't put your hope there. Riches, if you're not careful, can corrupt. It's not wrong to have money. It's wrong to have money as your God. It's not wrong to have money. It's wrong to trust your money more than you trust your God to let that rule over you. So those riches, and those riches will never fully satisfy your soul. And we know this because we all understand the difficulties of rough economic times. That comes to everybody. Maybe not everybody equally, but we all understand. Like we're kind of teetering on the verge of a potential recession. And we know it. the cost of everything is going up. And we look at our accounts going down. Like my dollar doesn't buy as much a day. We just know, like, man, there's some uncertainty here and it's tempting to trust more in your money. But then you get times like this. Like, I don't know if I can trust my money because now, like, I don't even know if money works at a gas station. I think it's like a kidney and a half a gallon now, whatever it is. I mean, it's just like, it's getting crazy out there, right? Like, what, 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 oh, what do we do? And, and James is just reminded them, like, God never promised economic certainty to us. He says, times are always challenging. So it reminds us that the riches of this world aren't even worth comparing to the riches of heaven. He goes on and says, God blesses those who patiently endure the testing and the temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life. The crown of life. Like that's the reward in heaven. I don't care how many billions you have. I don't care if you shame Elon Musk by making more. I don't care if you buy Twitter out from underneath him and buy a SpaceX and fly up to the moon on your rocket. You don't have anything compared to the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him that you're going to receive in heaven. That's the riches to be living for. The money of this world... It's just going to keep doing this. Don't put your trust there. But trust the one who's over it all. So James goes on. He says, don't be misled, brothers and sisters. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. It says, remember, when you are being tempted, don't say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. No, God is not the tempter. That's the next slide. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. Now, hold on to this. We're going to come back to this in a moment. Your desire gives birth to sin. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. And that's where it leads us. You know, the temptation itself is not sin. To be enticed toward wrong and resist it is not sin. 
The sin comes when we're enticed for a drone and we don't resist. We just full on enter in and indulge, like swim around in the sin water. Woo! You know, but what we know is that never works out for a good. That never brings lasting satisfaction, never brings complete joy. It, it always wars against us. Sin never produces anything good for us. It steals from us and it wrecks us. So James goes on and says, so don't be misled, my brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift that comes down to us from God, our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes. He never casts a shifting shadow. No, no, no. This is who God is. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. Now, that true word is Jesus, right? He gave us Christ. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. Notice the way James juxtaposes birth. Your sin, this desire in you, gives birth to sin, and that sin gives birth to death. James is making this very powerful and sad word picture for giving birth to death, picture of stillbirth. It says, you give in to your sin, you chase that, you have stillborn spirituality. It's painful. It's traumatic. It's heart-wrenching. There's no life there. The promise of life, you're just deceived into death. But God, I don't know. God gives birth. God wants to give you a new life. So your sin is going to steal you into death, but but God wants to give you life. He's going to breathe life into you. And this is the beauty of what God does. You don't be misled because that's what sin does. Sin misleads us. It lies to us. It flips the scripts. It reverses the reality. It tells us that God is bad and what's you know, it was bad is actually good, and it swings this thing around. And when we face trials, there's always a corresponding temptation to blame God, to, to turn away from God, to doubt God, to run from God. The temptation is to think that God is against us, or at least he's not for us, or maybe he's just not good or not good enough for us, or maybe he's just not powerful enough to see me through or doesn't care about me, that God has somehow abandoned me. Like, there's always this temptation that goes along with the trial. Like, God, where are you in this? You must be against me. And James here is like, no, that is not the case. That's never the case. Whatever good you have came from him. And the bad that you're experiencing comes from living in a broken world. It comes from an enemy who is against you. It comes from your own evil desire that you've allowed to grow within you. That's while you're facing something bad. Never God. God is a giver of good. Listen, Jesus came to give life full, abundant, overflowing forever. Satan came to steal, to kill, to destroy. Don't ever confuse the two. Those things that entice and look good for a moment are only for a moment. It's like drinking poison. It's being led astray. God is the good one. So lean into him. When we face trials, we either grow in maturity or we give in to temptation. And so if we choose to lean into God, then God gets glorification. We give in to the temptation. It's just self-gratification. And that only lasts a moment, but the regret lasts a long time. When we lean into God, it'll build strength. Like going to the gym, you start doing the weights, you start cranking, and it tears you down a little bit. You build, you got the resistance, you come back stronger. And that's what these trials do. They build a stronger faith, a more robust faith. You keep coming back. The next time you face trial, you're stronger for it. You're closer to God. You have more intimacy with God. You have more trust in God. You have more confidence in who he is. You have more hope in who he is. You have more confidence in what he's doing in you and where he's taking you. But you don't 
Lean into him, you're just going to surrender to weakness. And weakness grows weakness. You either develop perseverance, helps you run longer and faster with God, or you just choose the shortcuts, and that will always short-circuit your life. You can trust God, or you can blame God. You can lean into God, or you can lean away from God. Like, this is the pattern. You can seek God, or you can turn from God. So when those things happen, you can either choose to grow, and you'll find lasting joy, or you give in, and you'll have temporary relief, and like I say, a forever kind of regret that goes with it. You either lean into God and you taste life, or you're just giving to the temptation and you end up with death. Friends, one of the greatest anchors for your faith when the difficulties of life come at you, when those waves are crashing in on you, one of the greatest anchors for you is a strong confidence that God is good, he is faithful, and he will see you through. Not just knowing here, but experiencing his goodness by looking back over what he's done in your life, but also looking to the church who surrounds you, who loves you, who's there for you. Don't ever keep your trials to yourself. You have a personal relationship with God, but it's always in the context of the church, of the community of believers. So you lean on the church and let her be what God has called her to be for you. And when this happens, what you'll find is that God is the one who initiates the relationship. It says God gave birth to us. God's the one who initiates relationship with us. God is the one who pursues us. God is the one who came down to heaven to earth for us. God is the one who went to the cross for us. God is the one who resurrected from the grave in part for us. God is the one who invites us into mission with him. God is the one who pursues us, who loves us, who offers us life. God is the one who is the persistent lover, relentless, who will never give up on us. Church, that's who our God is. Don't ever be misled to think he's something different or something less. He is for you. The cross proves that your God is for you, that he's faithful, that he loves you, and that he wants to see you through. So when you're facing those trials, don't ever be misled to think otherwise. And the empty tomb of Jesus proves that he has the power to do everything for you that he promised he would. Now, I don't know what trial some of you are facing. I don't know what pain you have gone through. But I do know some of you have been misled. You've been misled to blame God, to think it's his fault, that he was, he just doesn't care that he's far off. It's just not who he is. So you can trust him. You can turn to him. You can turn back to him. And if you never turned to him before, you put your faith in him because he is worthy and he is deserving, but he's good and he's faithful. And so he is there for you. Even when you can't feel it, even when you can't see it, even when it doesn't look like it, even in the midst of the mess, when the waves of problems are crashing in on you, you lean into him. You lean into him. Friend, when the sorrows of this world, when the problems of trials of this world come crashing in, my hope is that you will stand strong in your faith even when you're buffeted by those crashing waves, knowing that he is good and he is faithful. Able to say, it's well, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul because my God is good and my God is faithful and my God will see me through. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you and you alone are God. You and you alone deserve our worship and our allegiance because you and you alone 
are fully faithful and fully capable. So God, when we face trials, and I know there are those who are facing them right now, God, may we lean into you and allow it. Allow it to grow our faith, to grow our intimacy with you, to grow our confidence in you, to grow our trust in you. God, may our faith grow stronger. May we lean into you, even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, just to know that you are there, you're good, you're faithful, you are God, and you are worthy of our allegiance. God, if there are any who don't know you in this room or online, I pray that today they would take this step to lean into you, to trust you, to go all in, as James' brother Jesus did. You go all in and say, Jesus is my master. Father, we give all this to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.